so we've uh, arrived at uh, the point where we've looked at uh, a number of things in this following Jesus series. We've thought about the fact that as disciples of Jesus, we would aim to become more and more like him. We've thought about how that should change our thinking and how our thinking should be different more like Jesus. We've thought about how that presents us with a new balance. And I know loads of you couldn't make it last week because of the snow. So do go on and listen to Julie's sermon uh, from last week about the new kind of balanced lifestyle that Jesus lived that challenges each of us. But today we're going to uh, think about following Jesus into a radical lifestyle, into a completely different lifestyle than the world the people around us, the people of that time, were living. I wonder who you know who lives a radical life like Jesus. There are people around me who inspire me by their faith. There are people around me who inspire me by the way they forgive quickly. There are people around me who inspire me by doing things in Jesus' name that I would never be brave enough to do. I've read some stories this week as a way to inspire me and challenge me. And I came across this one on the Samaritan's Purse website. This is a person who decided to live like Jesus. If you walk through the narrow, dusty alleyways of Kibera, you will discover very quickly that it is a huge slum. It's in Africa, and recently it was the focus of the comic relief celebrity fundraising. But as you walk through, it's very easy to miss one of its prized jewels. In fact, if you walk past the blue corrugated tin shack, you could be forgiven for dismissing it as insignificant. This couldn't be further from the truth. For this is the home of Calvary Evangelistic Fellowship, a church which has both got a heart for the downtrodden but also a determination to bring the hope of Jesus to those who are seen as hopeless by many. The pastor, Humphrey, explains, There are many people who are sick in this community, who are poor, who are desperate, and who don't know Jesus. I therefore wanted to be like Jesus, and I drove the church to move from one of the nicer areas of Kibera into this slum. Since that, the faith-fueled move and this warm-hearted pastor, remarkable changes have happened. They run a savings and loan circle and they change people's lives by giving them the ability to save, even the small amount that they have, setting up loans so they can start their own businesses. They train young people in new skills and find them employment. And why? Because one pastor wanted to become more like Jesus. Incredible stories like that are not hard to find. The people of God all over this world are doing incredible things because they see that is what Jesus did and they want to live like him. Therefore, today, we're going to spend some time really looking at the kind of lifestyle that Jesus wants us to live. And you'll need your Bibles open, and we're going to concentrate mostly on the first part of this passage. This is Luke's version of it, and some of you may go, oh, there's something in Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount that sounds very, very familiar. 
Some argue that it's the same talk, just two different perspectives. But uh, having been an itinerant preacher myself, I'm sure Jesus must have preached this sermon more than once. It's a good one. He would drag it out every now and again, I'm sure. So Jesus here, this is slightly different scope to what Matthew records, but it's probably a different talk, but the same gist. The Sermon on the Hill, some calls it. And Jesus here is unpacking what it means to have a different kind of life. He's unpacking what it means to actually live in the kingdom of God. There's a great book that some of us are reading together around the church called uh, The Organic Church. And Neil Cole, the author, describes what it would have been like to follow Jesus around. Imagine what it would be like to follow Jesus. Every morning you wake up wondering what miracles you would see that day. What What would you think when you drank wine that only a few minutes ago had been water? How awesome would it have been to see the blind man healed? What would you think when you saw him feed over 5,000 people with a schoolboy's lunchbox? Imagine eating fish that had never swum or warm bread that had never been baked in an oven. Imagine that feeling when you saw him walk over the sea faster than a boat of professional fishermen. How would you have felt when you see him calm storms with just one command? Imagine how you would have felt when you sat and listened to his teaching. These people could never be the same again, Neil writes. And as we read this today, I'm praying that that's our our prayer, that we will never be the same again. You see, Jesus here is outlining a lifestyle that is so radically different to the world that we live in today. Even more than that, Jesus was only able to do all of those miracles that we've just read about there because he lived this kind of lifestyle. All of the things that followed, all of the healings, all of the incredible things happened because he was willing to live a very different kind of lifestyle. He wanted to live like the kingdom was the most important thing. So, what was this radically different lifestyle that Jesus lives? Let's have a look here in verses 20 to 23. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you in the name as evil because of the Son of Man. The kind of lifestyle that Jesus is talking about here is a completely topsy-turvy one to the one that we are told to live about today. Everything about what Jesus is saying almost says the world we live in have got it completely wrong. The kingdom of God is a topsy-turvy kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. Take the norm of what you know and blow it apart. Let's illustrate that by looking at this first one. Blessed are you who are poor, for that yours is the kingdom of God. Scientists are always trying to work out whether money makes you happy. Millions of pounds are spent on trying to work out whether money makes you happy. And uh, the latest research I could find was from December last year from Wheaton uh, 
economic school in the States, and apparently, money makes you happy. Cost them something like 2.3 million to work that out. And then the Gallup group, on the back of that, worked out that actually we all need $75,000 a year, and then we'll all be happy. So that's about 56,000 pounds. If we all had that a year, we'd all be happy, apparently. You're all smiling, thinking that sounds good, aren't you? Apparently, money makes us happy. And I'm not completely convinced that many would argue with that as a fact. I was watching a programmer late Tuesday night about the fight for social housing and how people who were homeless uh, were trying to get housing. And one guy, Ben, there said, all I want in life is enough money to have my own house. And you can't argue with that, can you? His aim in life was to have enough money to have a roof over his head. It seems a reasonable enough request to me. But what Jesus is saying here is something completely different. He's saying something that is so radical to our society today. As I was reading this this week, God said to me, what would you do if I asked you to go and stand in the middle of the London Stock Exchange and announce these words? I don't want to do that, thank you, God. Can you imagine standing there and saying, blessed are you who are poor, for yours are the kingdom of God. These words absolutely stand in the face of what our society is based upon. Let's have a look a little bit deeper. The word blessed, uh, you can pronounce that in Greek yourself, means an unhappy, untroubled state, care, uh, free from care, and it can only be caused by, they believed, uh, this is Greek writing, in the gods could only cause this. Nothing you can do can cause this state of untroubled freedom that you would find. That's what blessed actually means. What a wonderful place to be, an untroubled state. Not waking up in the night thinking about this, that and the other. Not waking in the morning worrying about something. Untroubled state, free from care. Jesus is saying here, The poor will experience that. Theirs is the kingdom of God. What is he really saying? He's saying, blessed are the poor, for they will know what it really is like to live in the kingdom of God. This untroubled state can only be experienced when the richnesses of this world are stripped away. Because then you know what's really important Then, faith and trust in God are the things that stand out. You discover what it really means to be heirs of the kingdom of God. We are all fabulously wealthy because we are the king's kids. The king's kids, that's who you and me are. And nothing, no amount of money, not even $75,000 can buy that. To know we are the king's kids transforms your world. To know you belong to the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of darkness transforms your present and your future. Money cannot buy that. We're going to sing in a while, King of Kings, Majesty, and that last uh, chorus says, in royal robes, I don't deserve. That's who we are. We have royal robes that we don't deserve, that God has given each of us. Blessed are the poor, 
for they really know what it means to live in the kingdom of God. That feels a bit uncomfortable because for most of us, in fact, all of us in one way or another in this culture, we are quite rich. Very few of us, like Ben, live on the streets longing for a roof over our head. So what about uh, those of us who do have money? How can we really understand what these verses mean? Are we to go and give it all away in the name of Jesus? Well, go for it if that's what God is saying. But there's something more about this. You see, I think I know what it means to be an heir of the kingdom only because of the times when everything has been stripped away. I think of a time at college where I really had no money and I was praying that the the cash machine would give me a five-pound note Uh, And as I put the card in, not only a £5, but a £10 came out because some kind lady from my church had put £25 in my account that week without knowing my plight for food. In those times, I understood the grace of God. In those times, I understood what it meant to really rely on him. I know that actually the love of God sustains me because of the dark times I've been in. To say God loves me when everything's good... It's quite easy, but to say I know God loves me when actually everything around me is dark, the situations I am in are hard, that's a lot harder to say blessed be your name when you're walking on that road of suffering. It's at those times we know what it means to be king's kids. It's at those times we know how rich we are in Jesus' name. We only know how rich we are when we've experienced what it means to be poor. It's when it's all stripped away, then we know what really matters in life. It's then that we know that we need God. It's then that we know the stuff around, the world, around our world, our situations, actually complicates things. Verse 24 is a hard comparison for us. These are called the woes. But woe to you who are rich, For you have already received your comfort. What sorrow awaits those who do not understand the riches of the kingdom of God. The wealth of today is only for today. And Jesus in Matthew says this, Do not store up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And he goes on to say, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Cannot serve both God and money. This driver carries no cash. Treasure stored only in heaven. That's a bumper sticker you can buy from Wesley Owen, scarily, not even an American company. (sighs) Very scary. But it's true. We only know how rich we are when the world's stripped everything else away. We only know how good God is when we trust him in the hard times. We only know the riches of the kingdom when everything else seems insignificant. Blessed are those who are poor long to be poorer, so that I may know the riches of heaven. But Jesus' challenges don't end then. That's just the first verse. So we're going to move on to this next one. Uh, I could talk about all of them, but we haven't got time. 
Blessed are you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. That's the uh, New Living's version. I quite like it. Blessed you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. We've all weeped at certain points. Some of us may be weeping now. We've all had things in our world that cause us to weep. And I don't know how many times I've heard this this phrase used at a funeral or at a time when somebody's desperately ill. Don't worry, it's going to change. You might weep now, but God's got better things for you in the future. And all of those things are true. But it seems that that's not what Jesus is saying here at all. This is talking about something different. And and when we start comparing it with the woes in verse 25, for example, we understand something different here. It says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. It seems that Jesus is tapping into an Old Testament idea here, where prophets and people of God wept for nations, wept for cities, wept for people because they were far away from God or acting in an unrighteous way. Think of Nehemiah who had a glimpse of what Jerusalem had become and he wept and fasted and prayed for three whole days. Or in Ezekiel we read here, Uh, that Ezekiel uh, is told by God, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the forehead of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done. Ezekiel's told to go and find those people of God who weep, who weep over what the world has become. Jesus is saying here, I want you to have a broken heart for the lost. I want you to have a broken heart for the poor. And if you do that, if you weep now, then there will be a time where you rejoice. When you're sat in heaven around the bridal feast and those that you wept over who found Jesus are sat with you, then there will be great joy because you are part of their story. A broken heart what Jesus is talking about here. And why? Why? Well, number one, we're weeping over what God wants us to weep about. God's own heart breaks for the lost of this world. We see Jesus arriving in Jerusalem and looking over the city and weeping and grieving for all that that city has become. We know that God's own heart is stirred by the plight of those who don't know how much they're loved by him. And so as we weep, we become more like Jesus because his heart is broken and so should ours be. But weeping always leads to action. Uh, I don't know who told me this, but when I had Lucy, somebody said to me, uh, she will break your heart more than anybody you've ever met. And that is true. She breaks my heart in a good way, but actually every now and again, I find myself on my knees before God, praying for her future, praying for the man she'll marry. She's only two, three next week. Praying for uh, her to become a Christian, to know the fullness of God's grace in her life. And, And the reason I do that, because my heart is broken 
by the thought that she wouldn't know Jesus in the future. My heart is broken that she would marry the wrong guy. My heart is broken by the fact that she wouldn't be able to worship God because she doesn't know him. A broken heart leads to action. It leads to prayer. And Jesus knew this. Blessed are you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. When I'm sat in heaven around the feast of the bridal uh, party, then I'm going to be celebrating that Lucy is there. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? Jesus says, be completely broken. Weep. I'm going to show you a video. Uh, It's a slightly um, self-indulgent video. It's something that broke my heart. And I know not all of you um, are passionate about kids' work and youth work. I completely am, uh, which you'll be relieved to hear because that's why you employ me. Um, But uh, actually, I think all of us have a responsibility to pray. I think all of us have a responsibility to uh, pass on our faith to the generations below us. And this video the other day I saw, it's come across my table twice this week. It, it breaks my heart when I think about it. And so we're going to watch it together. Uh, we're just, uh, uh, Richard, could you turn the lights down, please? And uh, then we're going to pray together for a moment. Let's pray together. Father God, your uh, word asks us to weep for the things of the kingdom. We've just seen uh, one example of what breaks your heart. And so we pray for the children of this church. We pray that all of them will come to know you. We pray for the children in our lives, our own children, our grandchildren, nieces, nephews, friends. We pray that they will come to know you too. Help us to pray. Help us to act. Help us to live a life that passes on the faith to the next generation. And Lord, I'm praying for each of us around here. As we think about what we're weeping about, I pray, Lord, that you will help us not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers too. If you're calling us to be involved in children's work or youth work, speak to us now and break our heart, Lord. If you're calling us to stand for the brokenhearted, the homeless, whatever it is, Lord, break our heart, we pray. For we may weep now, but in due time we will laugh when they become Christians, when they know you, when their lives are changed. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just going to quickly look at one of the uh, other verses, and uh, this is the one I don't want to talk about, really, because uh, loving your enemies doesn't really inspire me as a good thing to do. Maybe that's just me, and you're all way holier than me. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you. That's really hard, or is that just me? And we're not talking about those people we don't like, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. We're talking about those who actually genuinely don't like us, and believe me, there are people like that out there. People who don't genuinely like us. Maybe they persecute us for our faith, 
or maybe they struggle with us as people. There are people out there who can be considered as enemies. When I became a Christian, many of my friends became very aggressive about my faith, very, very hard about the fact that I'd become a Christian. They just couldn't understand it and were quite aggressive about that. They became my enemies because I became a Christian. And what does Jesus say here? He doesn't say seek revenge. He says way, way, way much than that. He says the world says that. The world says love those that love you. That's easy. The world says speak good of those who speak good of you. That's easy. Jesus says love your enemies. He died on a cross and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He did not deserve to be on that cross at all. And he showed his love by dying for those. And how? He's really clear. He says, love them, do good to them, help them, bless them, pray for them, don't seek revenge. I'm quite good at not loving people. I'm quite good at not doing good for them. I'm quite good at not blessing people. I'm quite good at not praying for them. And I'm fairly good at revenge if I wanted to try. I've had fun with some young people over the years of putting things in the bottom of my sleeping bag and various other revenge acts I've had to take. But actually, Jesus is saying, love, do what I do. Love, even if that means death on a cross. I don't find that easy to say. I hate the word practice what you preach. That's a real challenge if you're a preacher. I hate these words because they're so hard. They don't just speak to me today about my life. They speak to our world. Do we love our enemies? Do we bless them? Do we pray for them as a society, as a country? Do we seek revenge? Too often. If we could grasp what Jesus was saying for our life, it would be fantastic if, as a society, we could grasp what Jesus was saying. The kingdom would come in an incredible way. And so we need to be people of the kingdom, speaking up for the values of Jesus. The questions I have here are, who are my enemies? How can I express love towards them? How can I do good to them? How can I bless them? Do I pray for them? Have I really died to that act of revenge I desire? One of the uh, commentaries I read, and I'm going to end with this, said, Jesus is out to create an army of disciples that look at enemies as he and his father looks at them. As people to love and care for, people to provide rain for, people to die for. Jesus is out to change you and me. And obeying Jesus' commands in these verses, along with the working of the Holy Spirit in our heart, will accomplish just that. This passage, and we've only looked at such a small amount of it, highlights that Jesus was introducing a whole new way of living, a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of acting from the world that was there presently and the world that is there today. And he's saying, if you're going to follow me, these are the type of things you have to get. These are the type of actions you have to do. These are the type of lifestyles I want you to live. But I love the end of that quote, because we're not doing it on our own. It says the Holy Spirit will be at work in our hearts. And as I think just over today, there are times when I haven't acted in these ways, and God forgives. 
And there are times when I've let him down and he forgives. And there are times like now when I feel completely inadequate about loving my enemies, but he equips and he helps. And he says, I know it's hard, but I've left you my Holy Spirit, who is God and who is going to help you and challenge you and comfort you and encourage you to live more like me. And so Jesus did set out a radical lifestyle. And the question for me and for you is, are you willing to live like that? Are you willing to live like that? And if so, are you willing to trust that I'm going to provide all you need to help you grow and develop these things in your life?